So today we decided to do a no-code history lesson. Seth, are you ready to get into it? Let's go. Hello, No-Code Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my No-Code Story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Hello, everyone. Today is a very special day. It's a very special day for two reasons. The podcast is going to turn one this week. And I, I still remember the day that I was contemplating setting up this podcast. I wanted to have three episodes go live at the same time. And if I remember that time again, I was scrambling just to get everything in place. I didn't have a, a proper tool set. I didn't know if this podcast would, would last. And it's just so great to see that I think we've We've published 40 uh, plus episodes of the podcast so far, spoken to dozens of people in the no-code community, such an awesome no-code community. That's one reason why it's special. And I'm going to announce a few more things as we get into the next quarter. But the second reason this is uh, such a special episode is because I have someone with me on the pod today. And this is one of the shorter form episodes, but I'm partnering now with Seth Fannin. Seth, what's up? Hey, what's going on? Good to have you here, man. Seth's joining me as a co-host. He's been in the no-code space for a while, and him and I are now going to partner on this Wednesday short story type episode. And today, for the first one, we decided to do a deep dive, and it's going to be a multi-part type thing, but we decided to do a deep dive into the history of no-code and try to see if we could kind of riff on some ideas of where the movement was, just as a way to provide context to some new people that might be in the no-code space. But before we go into it, uh, I want to give Seth a chance to introduce himself to the audience as well. I'm so excited that we're doing this together now. But Seth, over to you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, so my name is Seth Bannon. I've been in the no-code space for probably about three and a half years now, I think. Uh, since about 2000, late 2018, early 2019, I started dabbling in some of the tools and Webflow, Dolo, Glide back in the early days. So a little bit about my background is a little bit uh, different. I don't really come from a startup or a, a technical background, but I actually was in the military for about five years from 2007 to 2012 time range. I got out, I went to school, kind of got into government contracting and defense uh, contracting. I've been there for about 10 years and working in anywhere from procurement, supply chain, project management, program management for over the last 10 years doing that. And, but I've always, you know, loved uh, building things and, you know, creating content, telling anecdotal stories and just trying to understand humans and how they um, use products and leverage technology to provide the solutions to solve their problems. So I uh, dabbled, was trying to dabble in, and learn uh, no code with like, well, actually code, CSS, uh, HTML. I kind of kind of stumbled upon, I think AJ and card and back in the day, just trying to learn HTML in, in the using Visual Studio. I'm married. I have uh, three kids. I think uh, right now I'm at a point in my career to where, you know, I, I really enjoy the startup scene. But at the same time, I'm trying to identify if that's for me. I, I love marketing and product management. I tweet on that a lot. And just the no-coded space in general, uh, it's just grown so much. And uh, I'm just happy to be here and uh, to help out and educate, you know, those of 
those creators and makers that also want to build products themselves. Awesome. I, I know for, for a fact that the audience is going to get a ton of value from your perspective, Seth. I want to read a little bit of the description uh, that I wrote for the episode when I interviewed you first. And so Seth's been on the podcast before. I had him on as a guest. If you go back to the list of episodes, you'll see it. It's, I think, number 21. And what I wrote back then is the following. I wrote, I'm so excited to share this one with you guys. Today's story has so many tangible takeaways for new no-code users and that I think I'm going to recommend this episode as a start here for people interested in the no-code space. And then I go on to introduce Seth and I say, I think that he has shared information about 10 no-code tools in the first 10 minutes. Absolutely packed with info. And I, I kind of, that, that always stuck with me. I, I've also recently recommended that people go back and listen to this episode because we talk about we talk so much more about enterprise no-code tech in that one episode than I think I have in so many other episodes combined. So I'm really excited to have you on, Seth. I think it's going to be a great run with the podcast. I'm so excited for where the podcast is going as well. I'll have more to share with the audience in, in the next few months. But this just puts the cherry on top of the cake for, for the first anniversary of the podcast. So today we decided to do a no-code history lesson, Seth. Are you ready to get into it? Let's go. All right. So the reason I wanted to do this was kind of two part. One, obviously, people need a start here in, in a lot of situations, especially if you're new to the space, if you're trying to build your first app, if you're a new freelancer after working a, a corporate nine to five and you don't know where to start. There's so many use cases where people need a starting point. So that was one reason why I wanted to do something like this. But also, I stumbled upon this article that I think was published on MakerPad recently. And when I say recently, it was it was a few months back. But they start they talked about the history of the no-code movement starting in 1982. And that really got me interested. Like, I didn't know that this was a thing back in 1982. So I, I decided, you know, why don't we do a refresher on where the no-code space is? But then take our listeners all the way from some of the early days of what maybe wasn't even called no-code at the time, and then talk through some of the early no-code years, the no-code acceleration that we saw in the, the 2015 to 2020 timeframe, and then focus in a little bit on enterprise, and then talk about what's beyond in the 2020s. So with that in mind, uh, a good starting point is actually to talk about how it all began with this whole concept of visual development. I don't want to go chronologically here per se, but I think anytime someone says visual development, my mind immediately goes back to two applications. One was Dreamweaver, which always resulted in, in horrible flash ads. I know a lot of us probably remember those days still. But then there, there was also a Microsoft product that was available at the time. I think it was Publisher, but it wasn't the current version of Publisher. Do you remember some of that, Seth? You know what? I don't because that was before my time. I, th I think I was a little too young at that time. But um, I think it was around 1999 for me, uh, you know, using iMesh and LimeWire, Napster. <laughs> that was the, about the time I started hacking computers together when I was probably in fourth, fifth grade. But I think for me, yeah, it was probably WordPress was the first thing I heard of, even though I've still never used WordPress to this day. I've never have. So I've never used Dreamweaver, but... We've all used Excel and I've used Excel, unfortunately, every day. This is the problem with the references is that you start to date yourself. But regardless, I think at that point in time, you, you brought up WordPress, which uh, I think is probably also in, in this oh, yeah. sort of time frame. 
the the interesting thing is that it's it's still so powerful and so ubiquitous, right? But I, I want to start by reading something from a book called Application Development Without Programmers by James Martin. And James Martin was um, and still is regarded as an information technology expert who's written over 100 books, went on to start several successful consulting businesses and so on. And I got tuned to this from the MakerPad article. And what he says is on, on the preface of the book, he says the number of programmers available per computer is shrinking. And, and this is in 1982. So this, this just gives me giggles, right? So the number of programmers available per computer is shrinking so fast that most computers in the future must be put to work at least in part without programmers. What do you think about that set? Like 1982, already starting to think about a life without programmers? Yeah, it's a pretty uh, bold prediction. I mean, to be that early, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1982. So I, I try to visualize how someone would come to that i guess back that was early apple days for sure yep. so wow that's just it's pretty amazing yeah and and you talked about excel so microsoft released the first version of excel in 1985 was it and yep. how are, are you thinking about excel as a as a no-code tool in the construct that that we frame it right now um, in terms of today, I guess most people wouldn't say it was, it's a no-code tool. But if we're if we're speaking, like I said, pre the I, I think in the '80s to early 2000s, how it all began is these were the precursors to no-code to being able to take data, slap it on a on a digital form in some form or fashion really fast. It was the probably at the time the fastest way to take notes digitally you know it, it was it was never seen before so it was the ability to take cells and calculate and you know, do mathematics binary code it, it was especially in a in a personal household because back at this time you know computers were barely apple was just barely unsurfacing the household computer in someone's house that was a new concept before that it was in defense military federal organizations for research or, or medical you know it's powerful Google Sheets, right? I mean, it's uh, the ecosystem has definitely changed a lot around it as, as, as in wanting more. But yeah, it, this definitely powered uh, a lot of future applications. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you think about dashboarding, like a lot of what we're doing with no code tech today is using a content management system as a backend to then visualize data on, on a front end interface and using a no code stack to then shape how that is viewed. So talk about web design, etc. And if you abstract that concept, you can actually think of Excel as being one of those tools that had this underlying database that you could then visualize and put dashboards around. And obviously, Airtable is now a much more powerful iteration of that, where they're adding automations to it. They're adding a lot of additional feature functions that aren't necessarily available or definitely weren't available in Excel at the time. Coda is the same way. Once you start getting into databases within Coda, you can start to do a lot of really powerful things with them. So I think the applications to this construct are what have changed, but you could start to maybe even visualize the first applications of database constructs in the 1980s. But do you do you remember, I know you talked about WordPress, uh, but do you remember like Dreamweaver? Do you remember some of the early versions of WordPress at all? 
you, you know, I, not back when it first launched. No, I mean, I was, I was, I was probably too young. I, I was in, well, 2003 WordPress launched. So I wasn't into tech at all then. I, I was still, I think I was a freshman in high school. So in 2003, so it was, I was a sophomore, but uh, still, um, I didn't, you know, hear about these things till later. WordPress, I definitely was on my rate, like on my radar around 2015-ish. Like I, I knew about it, but I just, I, I wasn't a creator at the time yet. I hadn't really taken that jump to try to do those things on, on my free time outside of work or to try to build a website. I actually went straight into the HTML and via Visual Studio Code, you know, a sublime text editor and was trying to learn how to code because that still was the path that everyone was on. It was trying to teach yourself how to learn how to code, but it's going to take about two, you know, or three years to really grasp this. But a Dreamweaver was way, way before my time. I actually didn't even know about that until I learned about the history of no code. Dreamweaver is actually still uh, in use. Uh, Adobe is still marketing yeah. it, but I think one of the main things that I despise about the web in the early 2000s was Flash. And it took such a long time for organizations to get rid of Flash, like all the major companies to get rid of Flash. And I have this Reddit thread back from 2016 that says, why does everyone hate Flash? I see Google's looking to kill it off in an upcoming Chrome release. And one of the replies is that Flash isn't up to par with today's standard of security and it has major security holes. But then also it was decent for animation, but I remember like the fans would just rip, right? The fans on your laptop would just rip when you ran Flash. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, I remember how, I remember the Flash technology, like the the pop-up. Yeah, the pop-up. You know, it was embedded. It was also used for like those websites, like, I don't know if it was, I, I ain't gonna quote them and say this right or wrong because I don't know if it was that website, but I remember playing like, do you remember the games like candystand.com where you yeah. could load a, a video game like and play and that yeah. was early 2000s i was doing that and i remember like in some similar sites like that it would it would be a uh, pop-up like an iframe box uh, adobe yeah so i remember and you always you would always have to exit it like 100 times exactly before it would actually either that or it would freeze you had ads on all four sides of the game that you were trying to play yeah it was horrible. But, but fast forward to today, I mean, one of the staggering things is so many improvements came up in the early 2000s with respect to no code in, in a sense, because even with WordPress, a lot of the plugins like Elementor and some of the others that, that are used with WordPress actually make it akin to a, a no code tool. Like you could use drag and drop all day if you're using Web, WordPress as a backend as well. It's a little bit clunky but I think for someone to build on top of a CMS, it's still a decent starting point. And I have a couple of stats up here that we were looking at earlier in terms of just how many websites are powered using WordPress. And it's it's just insane. I mean, if you think about, and this is a stat that was, that was published fairly recently, of the websites that don't use a CMS, 33.5% still use WordPress today. And of the sites that use a CMS, uh, 43% of all websites uh, use WordPress today, which is just a staggering statistic. If you think about it's, like uh, millions of websites. I don't think we're, you know, yeah, when it comes to WordPress, it, it was so early, you know, especially into the CMS technology. CMS back then was an actual another, I, th I think if I'm correct, that CMS was also in its early stages, the actual technology of CMS itself in a builder. 
So that was, you know, something that I think WordPress, the team there, and the founder obviously took uh, recognition of early. And that's why they implemented that so so early as he had that vision for that. But, but then you see a year later, Shopify in 2004 comes, comes around and, oh, now businesses can create e-commerce sites online and not yeah. just mom and pop shops can actually be online now. So like, and, and Shopify still is growing like crazy. So, I mean, Shopify and WordPress in my mind are the players. Even though I'm a Webflow fan, I, I obviously they've been around for a few years now. I, I think that Webflow is definitely going to move up in the, in the charts. And I'm excited to see what they're going to do with all, especially with the recent announcements they had, the no-code conference. It's going to be amazing for businesses and founders. But WordPress, yeah, definitely this host that many uh, sites and still be going today as an active business. Like it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I mean Matt Mullenweg, the founder of Automatic, which is which is the company that makes WordPress. They have a bunch of different products, but one thing that I was reading was uh, in the origin story of WordPress, the fact that Matt was a college student in his dorm room trying to start like a personal blog. And he was trying to use an existing CMS solution. I think it was like called B2 or something like that. Again, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with the history of this. But what happened was that Matt, while he was trying to create his personal blog, found B2 to be really clunky and that software had stopped all updates so it wasn't being updated anymore. So he just did a fork of B2 and called it called it WordPress. And and then they made it open source, right? So if you think about it, like today, everyone's forking stuff on on GitHub and stuff like that. But back in the day, the open source movement was just getting started, but creating a fork and then putting it out so the world can use it, it was a revolutionary concept at the time. And Matt actually has a phenomenal podcast that I would highly recommend. His website's ma.tt. I remember distinctly in September of last year, I think it was September, writing to him one night after after working on the podcast for several hours. I think this was, everyone at home was asleep. It was like two in the morning or something. And I just finished editing stuff and I listened to Matt's podcast and it was such high quality that I was basically cursing myself for not being able to produce stuff at that quality. And, and I wrote to him, uh, asking him to be a guest on the pod. So I hope that day comes, but it will. I'm sure that we will at some point. Yeah, I think I had, I've heard a, a podcast where he's been a guest on uh, before. And yeah, it's just, his story is definitely, uh, you know, it's something that can only be told through years of grinding and going through the, the ups and downs of building something that massive that's lasted this long. And uh, I mean, one of the other things that's interesting when you were talking about Webflow there is we have these statistics that, that come from a survey on w3techs.com. So we'll have a link in the show notes. But you'll see Shopify is a distant second to WordPress in terms of the number of websites that are used. But if you look down that list, Webflow actually has, if you look at all the sites using a CMS, 0.7% of all websites use Webflow. 0.6% of all websites use Weebly and 2.8% of all websites use Squarespace, which has been around since 2008 and 3% use Wix. And if you think about the amount of marketing that, that Wix and Squarespace have done to get True. to that 3%, just think yeah. about the amount of runway, some products like Webflow and, and, and Bubble even, which isn't even on this list have. And the, the fact that we're in the early innings of this 
is a massive understatement. There's just so much potential for growth. Yeah, there, I mean, in, in a way, there's a pattern here, you know, where you see who was early, who was after, who was next, who started next. But at the same time, yeah, you, you can definitely see the companies that definitely put a, a large amount of, you know, money into marketing for sure, ads, commercials, Wix, Squarespace for sure. Shopify, you can do it. It definitely obviously has paid off for them in, in that way. I still see tons of websites on, on Wix, like local businesses and small businesses. And I, just for me personally, I just wish there was a little bit more advanced features for c complex things. But I think that their average, you know, that their target is going for that small business owner to be able to just do in there and create my site now. I just need a place to do it. I yeah. don't care how it looks. I just need a place to do it. Yeah. For now. So I, I think that Webflow is 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 doing that plus more. And they they're they're tackling a, a I think a couple of larger problems at the surface that are gonna pay off later, especially around freelancers, agencies, businesses, developers. I mean, that they have a couple of user personas that they're targeting. So it's definitely it might take longer, but I I, I think that they're going to get there because it's looking pretty good for them. But Weebly too. I mean, I remember hearing about that back in the day. I mean, I, I didn't even know it was still around. I mean, I forgot about it to be honest. Big Commerce, WooCommerce, some of these different things I had forgotten about for so long. Yeah, I mean, commerce is a big part of all of the WordPress usage in general. I think there's about sixty percent of that is between the top three, which is like WooCommerce. There's Elementor, and then there was one more that made up about 60%. But the the key thing is if you think if you think about starting from that book in 1982 that talked about the requirement for software to be able to build stuff without programmers. The future of computing being something that exists without programmers. And obviously that's not the goal for no code tech. The types of programming that happen though are going to be much more customized and sophisticated. No code then brings a layer of abstraction and that abstraction began in the early 2000s. And until the early 2010s, this wasn't really called the no code movement, right? Uh, I've seen terms like RPA being used since the 90s. Uh, oh, yeah. Robotic process automation. I think I, I recently shared something in, in the last couple of weeks where some VC firms in the space are uh, talking about intelligent process automation that applies a layer of AI to RPA. So there's been some improvement there, but that's more uh, slow paced than what we're seeing with the no-code space right now. Yeah, and I think it's also the technology is a little different, I guess, with robotic process automation. It is different. I think it's more of a controlled, more of a controlled variable there, especially with large companies and data. So I think there's a definitely behind RPA, there's there's always a, you know, more security improvements a little bit. So I think that's why it's a little bit more trusted. It's been around, so it's and it's not too design friendly usually, but yeah. it's functional, right? So most of the companies, I guess, might be using it for dashboards, for procurement, purchase orders, things like that, or you can use some kind of logic or, you know, like algorithm to like understand a customer or to be able to like understand the customer's input data based yeah. on it and then parse it to a form or something like that. But from my, that's from my experience of in, that I've seen working in the companies that I've worked for. Yeah, the challenge with something like RPA is that it requires so much maintenance. I was talking to a developer recently, and one stat that was astounding to me was 40% of all custom development is actually refactoring and uh, updating code. 
right? So that's 40% of everything that goes into like a developer's time. And that was just stunning. And if you think about like no-code tools doing that automatically, I think that in itself is a game changer for developers, right? So someone that's oh, yeah. a developer might be able to use their time more strategically and employ whatever it might be, automation tools, employ other visual development tools to do the other parts that, that are mundane. So, yeah, and you see like a like yep. companies like like Unquirk and, and different things in this serving this type of customer in the you know large uh, enterprise, and now they're actually moving into the it's a federal or trying to. So it seems like they're positioning themselves a little bit differently. I'm not sure. I've never used their the Unquirk uh, designer yet, or I've never been able to, since it's most of the enterprise low code tools. They're sometimes hard to get a hold of. If you're just yeah. a consumer testing them so like i i really would like to but um, i'm not sure if they're actually just positioning or because the good thing about i do know about uncork is is i've heard that it's kind of like a code repository also to where builders can use other people's code and factor it and reuse it and make, remix it so that's pretty interesting to be in an enterprise space that's something that you don't really get Maybe yep. with like, or there's other tools like Appian that's been around for years, right? And that, that Appian's really good for education. They've been educating the whole sector for years, right? And they have a really good like education, you know, series for people that want to build. So like, it's just, uh, it's evolving. So, you know, we'll move on. <laughs> so this was obviously part one of a multi-part series on the history of no code. In the future, we will talk about the early no-code years, the no-code acceleration, and what to expect in the future. Stay tuned for the coming weeks, and Seth and I will catch you on the next one. All right, that was the show. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next one.